0: Well, uh, if you will, uh, open your copies of God's Word to to Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6. Pastor Don handled for us the first eight verses of this chapter uh, last week. And now this week we're going to read verses 9 through 15. Nine through the remaining verses in this chapter. Again, Zechariah chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. And as the Word of the Lord comes to Zechariah again, the Word of the Lord comes to us this night through His Word. And here is what it says. People of God, listen to the Word of God for it is written for you. And the Word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Heldah, Tobijah, and Jediah who have arrived from Babylon and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set on it the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both, and the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord. And as a reminder to Halim, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, And this shall come to pass, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for it. Well, as we've been journeying through these uh, many different visions of the prophet Zechariah in these first six chapters, Zechariah the prophet has been giving us picture after picture after picture of this coming kingdom of God. And he has told us repeatedly throughout these visions that there will be a day in which the enemies of God will come at last face to face with his justice and the suffering people of God, his people will at last enter into the fullness of redemption and blessing. And of course, in the prophecy of Zechariah that has a historical context, we know that Zechariah prophesies about something that will happen in The near future for the people of God here as they regather in Jerusalem. Zerubbabel, the the king of the time, the governor of these uh, people who have returned from Babylon here to the midst of Israel here in the city of Jerusalem, he will see the temple be finished and he will see some splendor return to the city. But we know that this historical temple will soon fall and the And the oppression of the Jews will continue under empires like Rome. And so these visions have to point us to something much bigger, something much greater than what the historical context is explaining. And we've seen that as we've journeyed through uh, these visions in Zechariah 1-6. through We've talked about how the temple in which Zechariah is prophesying about is looking beyond the temple of Jerusalem and looking to the temple of heaven, how the people and the grandeur of the city is not just talking about the history of Jerusalem, but is actually looking towards the heavenly city that is to come where there will be uh, the grandest of grand riches and the best of the best foods. And, and here again, we see something of that message of this coming kingdom and this coming king before us, as we look at verses nine through 15. And you have to think that as this next vision, which actually is something of a, of a drama scene, if you will, there's some commands that, that Zachariah is to go to this house and uh, crown this man Joshua, and he's to take these returned exiles from Babylon with the names that I should have let Pastor Don read instead of me, because he reads them a lot better than me. You know, all of these things are happening in a historical context, but there's a vision that's taking place over the top of these things. And it's, and it's so encouraging to the people of God. I mean, if we were just to put ourselves in, in the shoes of the, those, those members, those citizens of this new Jerusalem... As they have labored and have they, as they have built the foundation, as they have heard these messages of encouragement and, and the goodness of God and how God will bring completion to their work, just keep laboring. You, you have to understand that their willpower is something supernatural, and at the very same time, it is full. They are ready to work, they are ready to labor. But just as fallen men do, in the back of their minds, of course, there are some questions. Particularly, there's a question about, well, how will God do this? I hear the message that He will do it. I'm encouraged by the message that He is, again, in the midst of us, and He is working, and we are working, and He is going to bring a completion to our labors. But how exactly is He going to do it? Well, it seems as if in this drama of sorts, in verses 9 through 15 of chapter 6, he gives us something of the answer. We might even say he gives us the answer key to how he is going to bring about his kingdom and this king that he is going to place upon the throne. And as I was listening to a a preacher preach from this text. In fact, he was actually preaching all of chapter 6 at one time. I think that might have been a little bit more than we could have chewed this evening. But nonetheless, he was talking about this answer key. He was telling a story of of an answer key to an exam that he found in high school. And it reminded me of one of my favorite classes at Clemson was my freshman English class. And my professor was Professor Robita. He was a a TA, a PhD student. And and during our exams, and you'll quickly realize why this was my favorite class, if you were just patient enough, when you had your exam sitting before you, about ten minutes before the class was to be over, he would begin to say things like, well, there is one apple. And there is two bananas. And there are three cats. And there are four dogs. And if you were being astute, you knew exactly what he was doing. Answer one was A. And answer two was B. And answer three was C. And he would give you the answer. And just in the same way, it seems as if God is giving through His prophet Zechariah the answer to the great question, how will the kingdom of God come? And so if you look back at the text with me, verse 9, you see that the word of the Lord came to me, Zechariah, this is Zechariah writing, and he sees, or he's telling you, you see the instructions that he is given He is to go to the home of Josiah, and there he is to meet with these three men, these exiles that are coming back from Babylon with these goods of silver and gold. Now, most commentaries will tell you that that these men who have come back from Babylon to Jerusalem, they are planning on returning to Babylon. They are... they are part of the scattered people of God, but they want to give some sort of offering, some sort of gift to the city. And it would make sense that they're rebuilding the temple, right? They want to rebuild it in the ways that the Old Testament has has described the temple or prescribed the temple to be built. And so they come with silver and gold. And Zacharias to take this silver and gold and they are to make a crown out of it. Now... It's real interesting here, that the Hebrew that this is originally written in, it, it has something of a conundrum before us. If we were to look at it in the Hebrew language, you'll you actually see that there's, it, it's alternating back and forth, you might say, between singular and multiples. Actually, three. And so some commentators say that he's to make three crowns. But the best commentators say, and I think it makes most sense here, within the context of chapter 6, that he is making one crown and it's going to have two intertwined or interweaved headbands. One of gold and one of silver. But even beyond the complexities of the original language, if we again put ourselves in the shoes of the people who are experiencing this scene, first Josiah, then the three exiles who have returned to Jerusalem for this short time, they see Zechariah making this crown, and then here in the midst of Josiah's home, you see this coronation that begins right here in this Jewish man's living room. And and if that wasn't confusing enough, why has Zechariah made a crown out of the things that we brought to decorate the temple? Why in the world are we in Josiah's home? Where's Zerubbabel? You might remember Zerubbabel from a couple of chapters before chapter 6. He was talked about in chapter 4, verse 9. And there it's told told to us that Zerubbabel comes from the line of David. He is the governor of the people of God here in Jerusalem. And and it's his duty, his right, to rebuild the temple, just as his forefather David had done, and just as his forefather Solomon had done. It is his head that this crown should be placed upon. But that's not what Zechariah does, is it? So of course, all these people gathered in this living room of sorts here in Jerusalem are, are looking for the governor, looking for the king. It, it's fitting for us as we are reestablishing a city for Zerubbabel not to be just a governor. But thankfully, the Lord is now creating for us a sovereign kingdom of Israel yet again, the people would think. And when Zechariah takes the, the crown, and he, he puts it upon the head of Joshua, the high priest who we've been introduced to before, from the, the tribe of Levi, from the lineage of Aaron, you can imagine the, the perplexed looks that exist within this scene. But, but if that's not confusing enough for us, then Zachariah begins to talk about the branch. He begins to talk about the branch If you look at verse 12, he's just crowned Joshua with this interlocking, intertwined silver and gold headband. This this crown made of two uh, fine precious metals. Then Zechariah begins to quote the prophets of old in verse 12. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch. We know that this is coming from The prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 1. The branch, for he shall be called the branch of this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And they're thinking, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel. But Zechariah is trying to push them farther. And and then as he continues to talk and and recite these, these forefathers, these... Previous prophets of the faith, you think about Jeremiah 23, verse 5: Behold, the days are coming. This is right before they were exiled to Babylon. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Zerubbabel. Their minds are going to Zerubbabel. He's the king. He's out of the line of David. He's going to rebuild the temple. All these prophecies, Zechariah, are are looking like the answer is Zerubbabel, but you've just crowned the priest. And that becomes full circle for us when we look at verse 13. It is he, talking about this branch, it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. All of a sudden, the people, as they hear Zechariah quoting for them the prophets of old, they begin to think, well, maybe it's not Zerubbabel. Maybe it is Joshua. Zechariah just said, you know, it's going to be a priest who sits upon the throne. It's going to be a, a priest who, who rebuilds the temple. It will be a, a priest who bears the royal honor of being the king of, of Israel. But, but what about Zerubbabel? Zechariah, you were the one who promised Zerubbabel that he would rebuild the temple. What about Isaiah and Jeremiah when they said that this branch who rebuilds the temple will be the one who extends from the line of David. Zechariah is saying you've got to look way beyond these human men. You've got to find one and I love the way that the end of verse 13 is written, you've got to find one that is between them both. And it's at this moment that you should remember the intertwined crown. The headband made out of woven together silver and, and gold because what the crown now resembles is not the kingship of Zerubbabel or the priesthood of Joshua. It's talking about, it's pointing you to the priest king. The priest who is the king and the king who is the priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and as, as, as Zachariah is explaining these things to the people gathered there uh, within this living room of Josiah. Don't get bent out of shape. Verse 14 are just the same names that we saw at the very beginning of our selected text. As he begins to explain that there is one coming who is better than Zerubbabel and, and better than Joshua, he's showing us now that something else and someone else is clearly in view. Because the branch is painting for us a portrait of the coming King Jesus. And when you look at verses 12 and 13, Zechariah actually tells us three things about this coming King. He tells us about the work that he will do. He tells us that he will build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor. Now one of the things that you have to remember is that just as we're looking way beyond historical figures of Zerubbabel and Joshua, we're looking way beyond the historical rebuilding of the temple here. Because we're looking for a temple that's not made by human hands. We're talking about a temple who, who is built through the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, at the cross of Calvary, What Jesus is doing is is attaining for Himself a people, a royal priesthood, a a building stone where He Himself is the cornerstone. The New Testament tells us time and time again that we are the temple of the Lord. And even Jesus in, in the upper room tells us that we will be the dwelling place of the Lord by the Spirit as His Spirit dwells within us. And so immediately, He shall build the temple of the Lord. He has built it at the cross of Calvary. He has atoned for the sins of the elect. He has saved His people from their sins. And He has given us this, or He has made us, rather, this royal priesthood. He has made us, enabled us to be the the living temple of the of the most high god and and you notice something here you notice something here what what the people want in this living room of Jos- Josiah is they want to be an independent sovereign nation of Israel they want to be away from Babylonian captivity even the people of the new testament they want to be away from roman oppression they want to be a sovereign nation yet again It's all political in their minds, but what Zachariah is preaching here is not a king who comes with the force of arms nor plays dirty politics to build his kingdom here on earth. No, he comes as a priest. And the reason why we confess together how Christ executes the office of a priest, look back at your bulletin. What is the first thing that the catechism says? He builds His kingdom by laying down His life as a sacrifice to satisfy the divine justice and reconcile us to a holy God. That is how King Jesus builds His temple. That's His job. But also here in verses 12 and 13, it tells us something of His dignity. It is he who shall build the temple and he shall bear royal honor. That second part is the the exaltation of Jesus. You you might know this language and we've used it before in this pulpit numerous times, but we believe in the humiliation of Jesus, how he took upon flesh. We're getting really close to Advent, aren't we? How... Jesus Christ did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but He took upon Himself the form of the servant in the Incarnation. He lived under the law. He died a sinner's death and was buried. We call that the humiliation. But then we also believe in the exaltation. The exaltation of Jesus that after the third day in the grave, Jesus rose from the dead because the pangs of death could not hold him and he ascended to the right hand of the father and he takes his seat upon the throne of heaven so that he might execute his office of a king you see how these offices correlate parallel with his humiliation and his exaltation he is now conquering all of his and our enemies he is now Restraining sin by His mercy. And He is restraining the evil one because He is the sovereign one. And so we see something of His dignity as well. Because just as Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped, in His exaltation, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, His name will be above every name. And at His name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. It's a royal honor in which our priest-king, the Lord Jesus Christ, is dignified by the Father with. So not only does He build the temple, not only does He rule upon His throne in highest of honor, but He also, look at verse 13, He executes from this place of honor the offices of priest and king. And He initiates for His people peace with God. Peace with God. Now, of course, we can rejoice in the fact that there will be perfect peace in the heavens above. Yes, we can rejoice in the fact that that one day there will be no more sin nor consequences of sin. There will be no wars nor rumors of wars. There will be no battles with sickness and pain and mental anguish. There will be perfect peace in the new heavens and the new earth. But we also should rejoice even now that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is peace. Absolutely no condemnation for the people of God for us to dread. We are at perfect harmony with the Father because of the priest king, Jesus. Now, as we close here, one of the greatest things about this text, it's almost as if this drama, this vision of sorts, is is something like a Puritan sermon you if you've ever read a, a Puritan sermon they give you all the exposition they explain everything in length exhaustively if this was a Puritan sermon to be much more than you know a handful or two of verses but then at the very end they'll apply it and that's what Zechariah does in verse 15 Zechariah begins to apply this drama or this vision to us in in verse 15 if you if you look At verse 15 it says, And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. The first thing he's applying is you take this gospel truth that there is a priest king who is coming, who will reign forever, who has satisfied the wrath of the Father for every single person who will ever believe and you go spread it from shore to shore. It's a call to evangelism. It's a call for all nations and all peoples, all tribes and tongues to hear the Word of God and respond to the Word of God. It is very clear here in verse 15 that that the kingdom in which Zechariah is preaching about is explaining to them. is far beyond the city gates of Jerusalem because this isn't just going to be a king and a kingdom for Jews only. Yes, Jews first, but it will also be for the Gentile. It will also be for those who are far off. And that's code for the nations. That's why Peter uses it in Acts chapter 2 as his, in his famous Pentecost sermon, right there at verse 39, after he preaches the gospel and the peoples uh, of all these nations that have gathered in Jerusalem as they are cut to the heart in conviction. And they ask, Brother Peter, what are we to do? He says, Repent. Repent and be baptized for the promises for you and for your children, Jews and the next generation and for those who are far off and also for the Gentiles and their children as well. This is a kingdom unlike any kingdom that you have ever imagined because it's going to have all peoples and all nations. And that should encourage us in our mission in our evangelism but also you see there in verse 15 that next sentence and you shall know that the lord of hosts has sent me to you and you shall know that the lord of hosts has sent me to you now remember this is zachariah writing in verse 1 the me is zachariah the prophet here at the end the me is the priest king the lord jesus and you shall know that the lord of hosts has sent Jesus to you. That's literally how it reads. And why does that matter? Because all of God's promises have their yes and amen in Jesus. All of God's kingdom is ruled over by Jesus. All of God's bride has been chosen and elected before the foundations of the world for Jesus. All things in our Bibles from Genesis to Revelation have their centered focus upon Jesus. And so it is a call to to see the yes and amen of all of God's promises in Jesus. Just as He promised that there would be a branch, we know that that came to pass in the person of Jesus Christ in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And just as that same Jesus told His disciples there on the Mount of Ascension, one day I'm coming again for my people. We can take that to the bank, as we like to say. Because the promises are true from the Old to the New Testament, and the promises are true all the way to eternal glory. And how do we know? Jesus. Look at the person and work of Jesus. That's what... Zachariah, or that's the second way that Zechariah is applying this text. And then the third, of course, is a call to obedience. If you look at that last little bit. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. You know, one of the things that has been a struggle with the evangelical church is this idea of Antinomianism. Antinomianism, it's a, it's a big theological word for almost like a hyper-grace. That, that the, the Lord Jesus Christ has paid the debt that you owed. He has atoned for sin. He has laid down His life so that you might go, here's what antinomians will say, that you might go and sin boldly and still rest in your salvation. That's not... The totality of the gospel is a beloved. Because here it is that the gospel is proclaimed. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is high and lifted up within this vision. And then it says, because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, diligently obey. Diligently obey. It's almost as if he's double underlining this word "obey." diligently go about doing what the Lord your God has commanded of you to do. And so in conclusion, we kind of have to search ourselves, don't we? Are we servants that are diligently obeying the Lord? Are we servants who are diligently obeying the Lord out of a thankfulness in which We offer back to God because of the work of Christ. You think about the way in which Christ is the priest and the king and how He executes these offices of priest and king and you you read over those answers yet again from our Shorter Catechism and you see the, the glories of what Christ has done, will do, and is even doing right now. And you think, the person and the work of Christ is so high, is so lifted up, is so mind-blowing, what command of His does He ask of you that you will not obey in light of all that He's done? What command would you turn your back upon knowing what all the Lord has done, is doing, and will do for you? You know, I love the the one of the final stanzas of Of when I survey the wondrous cross. Because it says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, uh, we do come thankful for the scriptures. And we do pray as we often pray, that you would use this, your word, to, to sanctify us as believers that You will enable us by Your Word to put to death sin in our heart and pursue Christ's likeness. That You would conform us and sanctify us by the truth. Your Word is true. And so as we see the yes and amen of all of Your promises in the person and work of Jesus Christ, let us, out of gospel thankfulness, diligently obey. Father, we ask these things in Your Son's name. Amen. Well. Will you stand and receive the Lord's blessing? Uh, And then, of course, we'll sing together as we dismiss Psalm 117. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. Be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance to you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Amen.